0: Welcome to our Suit for Good podcast. Today we'll be uh actually going back to uh uh episode 2 with Dave DeRocher. and uh man the first episode was was uh, pretty intense obviously but uh, this one is just as intense in just uh in the opposite direction of of meaning and and powerful impact into in the community and starting with his time at Delancey Street and and uh and the formation of the Other Side Academy which is just an incredible organization that he uh he now leads. So uh yeah, without further ado, enjoy the uh, second epi- part of the uh the episode with Dave Gerrocher. So back for part 2 here, Dave, you uh, so you just got accepted into Delancey Street. You got the judge to, I mean, uh, that uh, letter, that inspired letter you wrote the judge. And it, it struck—it really struck me that you've got this opportunity of a lifetime that you actually uh, felt like the hand of God helped you get. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you do is not show up to Delancey Street. <laughs> yeah. And then you said you your parents, you know, you got there two hours late or so? Oh, yeah, later than that, but yeah. So... I I mean knowing how you are now, like we had an interview set for nine o'clock this morning. You were that you were here at quarter two. Yeah. If you're not early, you're late. That's how that's that's what I believe, right? Yeah. And uh anyway, it's just it it's it's striking. It's striking the contrast between who you are today and that that moment, even just in that moment where man, you're you're not even gonna you're not even gonna go to Delancey Street yeah. and your mom. All the emotion that you felt from your mom kind of helped you make that decision, so yeah,
1: and I realized that <clears throat> that twenty two year prison sentence looming, and if i don 't show up, i 'm going to eventually get busted and get the twenty two plus whatever new charges I get, and I know the judge is going to stack them and run them bow legged not concurrent. I already know, so thankfully, you know, God or whatever just prompted me to call my mom and anyway, I found my way to Delancey Street and was lucky enough to Get through that interview, and, and for them to accept me and Delancey Street. You know, it, to, to digress just a little bit, that's why I say, and I'm so, I'm so convicted with this thought that so many people think drugs. Oh my God, it's a poor drug addict. They're just sitting in the basement with a little bit of dope, and they're snorting a line. And you know, they didn't have to go screw somebody over for it. And it just isn't reality. The reality is, we we become just monsters in our life and I had become a monster. And when I left the jail, I was clean and I was sober and I was still making choices that could cost me the rest of my life. Drugs aren't the problem. As we continue to fight this epidemic in this country, we think drugs are the problem. Getting people clean and sober, in my opinion, and I'll just own my opinion, is not the answer. You can put me in a cell like I was where I'm clean and I'm sober. I'm still an asshole. I'm mm-hmm. still a liar, a cheater, a thief, a manipulator. Come on. I got out of jail and got in PJ's car, drove across the street to do our thing in the parking lot, Have her drop me right back off at the jail for my girlfriend, Jennifer, to come pick me up. Yeah. I'm not high. And while well, my mom and dad are waiting, while well, I'm risking 22 years. While well, your mom and dad are
0: drove- From Nevada to from Nevada County. to take you to mm-hmm. save your life. Mm-hmm. And you're, disre- you're disregarding right. them even then. So what do drugs have to do with the equation? Yeah. Nothing. Huh.
1: If we don't focus on behaviors, and that's mm-hmm. the problem. That's why the problem in our country is getting so worse. I mean, I, I do presentations. I, I don't want to... I could talk about this later, but we're here. I do presentations all over the world, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. All over the country, primarily. And I ask people, I was just with Governor Cox and Representative Clancy and others down in Utah County Saturday, and I had a whole room of people that wanted to hear about addiction and the, and the cause and effect and what's happening in our communities. And I asked everybody in the room, is the problem getting better or worse? No hands went up for better. All the hands went up for worse. And I said, Can somebody in this room tell me why? And nobody could. I said, Then you can't argue when I tell you why. If you don't know why the problem's getting worse, you don't deserve a seat at the table. Because if you th- don't know why the problem's getting worse, then there's not a problem to solve. Hmm. So get out of the way, give the chair to somebody else who understands. Hmm. And some people might say, Well, that's kind of arrogant. No, I asked you, Why is it getting worse? If you don't m- know, move. Yeah. Get out of the way so people who do know why it's getting worse can start addressing the problem. Yeah. The problem is we are too soft on drug addicts, too soft on criminals. We don't hold people accountable. One of the major problems now is the lack of accountability in our country as we continue to see San Francisco spiral out of control. Los Angeles, tens of thousands of, of drug addicts living on the streets. Portland, Oregon, we've lost the entire community. It's one of the most dangerous cities in the country now. You go there and you walk around Tent City, you're going to get stabbed while they steal your shit. The reason why it's happening is because we allow it to. Hmm. There's a difference between a chronically homeless person who has severe mental health issues and drug addiction lawlessness. We need to separate the two and address each separately. So when I left that jail... Right? I was making really poor choices in my life. I know the difference between right and wrong. I was choosing wrong. Drugs aren't the problem. So, as we continue to try to solve this problem that's an epidemic in our country and we keep making it a medical
0: issue, we're going to
1: continue to kill people, hmm.
0: in my opinion. And I'm not, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty solid opinion, though. I mean, it's a, a pretty solid opinion on a life of, uh, and. Hun- I, hundreds of lives that you've, you've thousands yeah
1: 45 years of living yeah. this lifestyle basically yeah, thousands yeah uh, on on the good side and the bad side you know yeah. um, now i'm on the good side but and, and yeah. i you know it, when i was in delancey street i was there for it was a two-year program i was there for eight and a half years and people look at me like that's weird when i say that and, and they're probably right and now go well why do you think i stayed and they all articulate reasons why and i go no because i could today's treatment Today's treatment in this country, if you go to a treatment facility, and please, nobody misconstrue what I'm saying. Treatment facilities are important, and they're needed, and the people that work there are absolutely incredible human beings. They are angels. However, the model is broken. Anybody who thinks Dave DeRocher could go to a 30-day or 60-day or a 90-day program at the heat of the lifestyle I was living, you need more help than I do. Mm. of course I'm not going to get any help there it's not long enough to change the behaviors we don't focus on behaviors enough what we're teaching people in these programs is all about uh, the disease model the trauma informed care he- here's my thought on that right and, and I don't know some people are probably going to think I'm crazy and I don't know maybe they're right but that's another conversation we could do another podcast on whether or not Dave's crazy but how many people are on the face of the planet
0: uh, I don't know 7 mil- billion
1: it's about 8.3 billion people guess how many people have trauma
0: I'd say majority. 8.3 billion. <laughs>
1: yeah. 8.3 billion. Guess how many people do drugs as a result of it? 0.0000000000.1. There's like 10 zeros. Guess how many people have trauma that don't do drugs? So if we're looking for the common thread, isn't the thread more common that people who have trauma don't do drugs than those who do? I don't know. It's just a just the way I look at it. Interesting. I'm not saying trauma isn't a part of it. But when is it trauma, and when do we allow it to become the excuse? Mm. Because everybody has trauma. And as a far larger group of people that have trauma that don't use, than that does. But what science and the medical field has done is they've gone, there's the common thread. There it is. Well, I can show you another common thread. I can show you the common thread of the billions of people who have trauma that don't use. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be some trauma-informed care with some people that need it, but for me, um, I didn't become the drug dealer because of trauma. I became the drug dealer because I loved the lifestyle. And we are not even allowed to say that now today. We're not even allowed to tell people that they're liars or cheaters or thieves. In some programs, if they, they find you and you've stolen a staff cell phone, you can get the phone back, but you can't call them a thief. Why not? Did they just steal something? We wonder why the problem's getting worse. The problem is getting worse because we live in this woke state now where you can't tell people the truth. Well, I have news for you, newsflash. If you want to help people, you tell them the truth. Hmm. If you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. Hmm. We live in a tell them what they want to hear world. And that's why I say, I ask these big groups of people, and I was in Arizona a couple of weeks ago talking to 300 surgeons from around the world, 13 countries were represented. I asked them all the same question, is the problem better or worse? And they all said, worse, why? They couldn't answer. Our response to it is, it just so happens that you, BJ, and everybody listening to this are human beings. We want accountability in our lives, but it's conditional. If we get up every day and we go to work and we work our butts off and we're on time, 15 minutes early, and we stay late and we go the extra mile because there's not a lot of traffic on that road and we've got a good attitude and we do this for a long time, what happens?
0: Positive results.
1: Positive results. We get a promotion. Yeah. We get compensation increases. Those are called consequences. Newsflash, newsflash. People want consequences. It's conditional only when they're positive. Well, I'm sorry. That's not how life really works. We're human beings. We need to be told the truth about ourselves. And we believe, I believe, that love and truth are synonymous with each other. If you really love somebody, if your seven-year-old runs out of your house, BJ, and he shoots across the yard and darts across the street and doesn't look left or right, what are you going to do?
0: I'm going I'm to uh, put him in timeout. And You're going to grab him? I'm going to explain yeah. what... You don't do that, ever. You're
1: going to tell him the truth. Yeah. Are you going you to powder his little booty and tell him it's okay? And no. we're gonna. When you see somebody that's doing something that's detrimental to their well-being. We live in a world now where, you know, when I got to Delancey Street, <clears throat> the reason why I changed is because people told me the truth. They didn't powder my Southern exposure. They didn't baby me. They were brutally honest about who I had become. I was a deadbeat dad. I had kids I didn't raise. I kicked them down the street for other people to raise while I chased other um, women. I wanted to use the right word, yeah. but I wanted yeah. to be graphic about it, right? But yeah. we'll just go with women. Yeah. Drugs, the lifestyle. I made choices in my life that I didn't give my kids away. They didn't, I, I, my kids weren't taken away. I gave them away. Yeah. We're not even allowed to say that today. Why not? It's what I did. I could choose to be a dad and take care of my kids, or I could choose to have other people do it while I chase women and drugs and lifestyle. That's the difference between me and many people is I completely own who I'd become.
0: But was that, so going to Delancey Street, you get to Delancey Street Mm -hmm. and they start telling you that, Mm -hmm. how long does it take for you to own that? And how, walk me through for somebody who doesn't know, Delancey Street, you get there and what happens? Like, what is Delancey yeah. Street?
1: Delancey Street is a, is a world-renowned TC, TC standing for therapeutic community. You'll hear me say TC a few times, but TC's therapeutic community. It's been around since 1971 and graduated about 25,000 people like myself back into the communities as successful members because they are hard and they are honest and they tell the truth. And it's peer-driven, it's peer-run, it's not a bunch of doctors and counselors and therapists who went to, you know, Harvard and got a degree and think that they can help me. If anybody listening to this thinks that some Harvard graduate uh, do-gooder, little lily white ass uh, (laughs) do-gooder that's got this degree hanging on their wall is going to help Dave DeRocher fresh out of prison, you need more help than me. They can't teach you what I went through in there for you to fully understand who I'd become and why Mm. I'd become that person. It's just not something you can teach in school. Sure. Delante Streets ran exclusively by ex-felons and ex-drug addicts, and the leadership are people who have been there and done that. They've already gone through. There is nothing more powerful. Let me explain to you why. There are two forms of therapy. One-on-one therapy. You are my therapist, BJ. We are sitting in a room. You have a yellow pad of paper, and you're asking me questions. It is up to you to figure out what's wrong with me based on the lies I tell you. Broken system. Hmm. Now I'm not saying that therapy isn't needed and it doesn't serve a purpose because it does. But if you're dealing with me or any other drug addict criminal at that time in their life,
0: it works if you're being honest with yourself. Yes, it works if you're being honest. We've uh, my wife and I have had uh, some uh, an incredible therapist that's mm-hmm. helped us and but it but I could see it wouldn't have worked if we were not being yeah. totally honest yeah. about what we thought yeah. and what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, individually. Yeah, I'm
1: so glad you bring that up because those are the cases where it is because you guys were going in, you wanted to be honest about what was going on so they could help. If you're a drug addict and a criminal like me, Mm. I am not going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you what you need to hear so you can give me the medication I want
0: that I don't need. And I can get out of this 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 situation, right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So there's a difference. But let me explain to you, group therapy, when you're in Delancey Street or the Other Side Academy, You live on property with your peers. It doesn't matter what you say. People talk all the time. Talk is cheap, probably because supply exceeds demand. But when when you live there, it's like when you live with your family and your kids. It doesn't matter what they say. You see how they act, right? (laughs) And you deal with them based on how they act. Mm -hmm. It's the same in a TC. You can't get away with shit. Yeah. I couldn't get away with anything in Delancey Street. I lived there with a bunch of people just like me. Who better to help me than help me than been people like me? Group therapy is far more powerful than one-on-one therapy in this setting, in this space.
0: Because you call each other out. Because we call each
1: other out. And believe me, I'll give you an example. I was 18 years old, living at home with mom and dad, hooked on cocaine. They've tried everything outpatient, intensive outpatient, therapy. I'm going to a therapist. His name is Mark. I live in Cerritos. He's in Anaheim, 15 mile drive. As I'm driving down Ornesthorpe, I'm pulling into the gas station where the attendant there is the drug dealer. I pick up my cocaine. I get in the van. I chop up a few lines. I get high. I drive to Mark. I go to therapy. The dope's in my pocket. I'm loaded in his presence. There are no cell phones then. He's calling home to my mom and dad, reporting to my parents how great I'm doing. A therapist with no lived experience. There is nothing worse hmm. than an expert with no experience. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying, again, that there aren't good therapists. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in this space. In this space. The reason why the problem's getting worse is we are not addressing it correctly.
0: Hmm. So at Delancey Street, what what, what was it about Delancey Street? You said it's two years. Mm-hmm and then you end up you were there for 8. Yeah. So let w- the listener understand like what was the process like of you changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we assume you changed there. Yeah. And you know why 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 an extra 6 years in this place and also after you served your 2 years at Delancey Street, you're you're good to go right as far yeah. as the judge is concerned, mm-hmm. but yet you stay another 6 years. So talk us through that.
1: Yeah, Delancey Street got such a a stellar reputation in the community uh, in the five states, two of them in California, San Francisco and Los Angeles. San Francisco is headquarters, New Mexico, North Carolina, New York, in that order. Been around since 1971, widely known as the gold standard in TCs, I believe, up until the Other Side Academy started. Now Delancey Street, when I was in Los Angeles, Delancey Street had 275 people the day I got there living on property. Today in L.A., there's 16 people. Delancey Street is dying Um, And it has been for years, and I I believe it comes down to leadership, but that's a whole other conversation. I'm just telling you where things are at now. Wow. I'm so glad we started the Other Side Academy because I've got scores of people at the Other Side Academy that would otherwise have to go to Delancey Street, but no one wants to send them there anymore because it's a dying model. Uh. But it's also the model that saved my life. Mm -hmm. So I get to Delancey Street, and in my head, I'm like, oh, God, thank you. I just got a two-year program that I've got to stay at for two years to beat this 22-year prison sentence. But Delancey Street at that time was thriving. It did its job. It made me understand who I'd become. I got there and I saw people I hadn't seen in years. Years I hadn't seen. I thought they were either in prison or dead. People I'd gotten high with, done time in the county jail with, done time in prison with. And there's so many people coming and going in that lifestyle in California. Then then they were just gone. You forget about them. Then I got to Delancey Street. And I'm like, Holy cow, how long have you been here? Four years. Four years. It's a two-year program. What are you doing? I didn't understand it like that at the time. They get their talons in me, and they start pulling me through the process. And in those group meetings I was talking about, the group therapy, they started to tell me about myself, and it resonated. They were right. And the difference between me and many victims is I'm not a victim. I made choices in my life. I was a victimizer. And as they started to tell me what a liar and a cheater and a thief and a deadbeat dad, hell, I wasn't even a dad. I was just a deadbeat. I was never a dad. When they started to tell me about myself, it started to resonate. And a lot of times people today go, oh, no, you, can't, you can't do that. It's going to shame them. When they told me the truth about myself, it wasn't to shame me. But guess what I felt? Shame. Shame. I now have a foundation to build from. Now I'm like, oh, wow, they're right. What a scumbag street urchin, parasite I had become. I had. I'd become those things. And I'm like, okay, all right, no question. That is who I'd become the day I got to Delancey Street. Hell, I proved it that day. I was still doing it. I'm not even high. I'm still doing it. So in Delancey Street, you know, eventually we get past all that, and other things are happening, and I, you know, I'm acting out, and I'm, you know, building injustices, and I'm not happy about this or happy about that, and didn't know how to be grateful, and all these things get pointed out in these group settings. There is no better therapy than group therapy, people who are living with you telling you how you're behaving. At about a year and a half, I'm getting ready. At two years, I can graduate. I knew I wasn't ready. More importantly, I started to fall in love with me. Now, what I mean by that, I didn't look in the mirror and go, hey, Brad Pitt, love you. (laughs) It's not what I did. I started to feel like my life had purpose. I started to feel like I could maybe someday build a life for myself. I started to feel good about Dave. And I started to realize maybe I don't need to spend the rest of my life in prison. Maybe I'm not that convict person I identified with for so long. I asked to stay a third year, and they said, absolutely, you can stay a third year. Why do you want to stay? I said, well, I'm not ready. The beauty of the model is in a TC is you can stay as long as you need to, right? Not as long as you want to, as long as you need to. They said, yes, you can stay. So about midway through that third year, right, I'm getting ready to to, to decide whether or not I'm going to graduate at three years. And I go back in the quorum, and Jeff and Dan are running the facility at the time in Los Angeles, and they go, what are your plans? I said, you know, I was thinking... I think I'll stay one more year. They look at me, they go, one more year? We thought you were in this for the long haul. I'm thinking, I've been here for two and a half years. I'm going to finish my third year commitment. I'm asking to stay a fourth year. That is long. They said, commit to two more. We want you around. Commit to two more. So, Stay here for five years altogether? And I agreed to the two-year commitment. A couple months later, Mimi Silbert came from San Francisco down to Los Angeles. We were sitting at a board meeting. Mimi Silbert runs Delancey Street. She's sitting right next to me. We're having a conversation. And you have to know Mimi. She's five foot tall, but she's like 20 feet tall. She is just a huge presence in any room. She looks at me and she says, David. She calls me David like my mom. She never called me Dave. (laughs) She says, how much longer are you willing to stay? And I go, I don't know, Mimi. I just made another commitment. David how much longer are you willing to stay? Mimi, I don't know. I I, I just made another commitment. I'm, I'm staying for a while. How much longer are you willing? Mimi, what are you asking me? She says, will you stay five more years? I said, five more years? From when? My last commitment? No, she says from today. That was a, it caught me off guard, right? I'm like, stay five more years. I'd been there nearly three years already. I'm like, holy cow. And I thought about my life prior to Delancey Street. And I thought about how good I felt about my life then. I mean, I really felt good about me, who I was becoming, what my future was going to look like. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, I'll stay. She looked at me. She goes, are you sure? I said, are you? I did not know why she was asking me Hmm. to stay five more years. I'm like, do I need five more? But I, I said, yes. A couple months later, she asked me to run the LA facility Los Angeles had about 275 people at that time. 15 vocational training schools that generated all of the revenue didn't take any money from the government at all. So she's asking me to run the Los Angeles facility, be the managing director. It was called the Facilitator was what the, what the title was called, but basically run 275 people living on property and all the businesses generated revenue. A couple of years ago, I'm going in and out of prison for selling dope. Now I'm going to run a multi-million dollar organization. I said yes. Wow. Hands down the best decision I had ever made in my life, not just in going, but in staying those additional five years, because I all of a sudden inherited this facility and I had the ability and the influence because, and the reason why they were asking me is I was such a positive influence around the house. They called me Dinner Date Dave. Right, don't laugh. You laughed. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, they called me Dinner Date <laughs> Dave because every night you could sit. Uh, the older students could sit down with the younger students at dinner. There was two shifts, and you could fill out a piece of paper and say, "I want to eat with BJ." And I would spend time with the younger students and just give them positive stuff. I was yeah. sometimes they'd call me Doctor Phil because I'm <laughs> always giving them positive. But Dinner Date Dave was the, was the handle, right? Yeah. And always giving them positive stuff. And I was just, I loved. I loved who I was becoming, and I loved the fact that I I, I found this thing that made me feel good, and it was called helping other people. And it became the new drug, right? Mm. Service to others. And I couldn't get enough of it. I was like, I was smoking crack. Give me another hit. Give me another hit. Give me another person. Give me another person. Give me another hit. Mm. I just loved helping people, doing interviews, getting people out of jail, doing interviews when they'd come in. What? talking to them off the ledge when they wanted to leave or there was throwing up emotionally about all this dribble, right? Whatever was going on. I fell in love with my ability to get through to people. And I realized that I had a, uh, a skill, if you will. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 So <laughs> this this entrepreneurial what leadership skill yeah. is like, like to me, like, I can't imagine. I mean, Running a business, I mean running an organization of two hundred and seventy five people. Ex felons and ex drug addicts. And multiple yeah, and multiple businesses that fund mm-hmm. like that's a big that's a big job. And that's mm-hmm. not something that that's not something that you can have somebody a nineteen year old, twenty year old no. do. There has to be a, a level of experience of running an organization, mm-hmm. dealing with people money i mean there's just so many you know it's a complicated job and so it's just to me it's like it's just like uh it was well, in-
1: it was insane no
0: to me it's like well of course of course it'd be dave yeah. because look at your life to this point of running whether it's uh, drugs uh, running prison uh, yards prison yards i mean whatever you're doing like you're leading and so it's like you have this capacity built in you and dinner date dave makes the perfect sense too mm-hmm. because you have this way of connecting. so cool. So obviously, it's Mimi. Mimi, yeah. Obviously, Mimi knew that. Yeah. Obviously, after seeing you for three and a half years, she's like, "Man, if we could get Dave to run this thing, yeah. it would be amazing."
1: But she asked me the question to stay first before I found out that that was the reason why. I, <laughs> wow. I, I, my answer probably would have been the same, but it was just the way she did sure. it, and 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 the fact Mimi is was highly regarded as like God in Delancey Street, yeah. and really in the world, she's a you know she's started Delancey Street back in the day with some help and then, you know, took it on herself and and created just an incredible organization that saved a lot of lives, including my own. I owe it my life. There was, you know, as I ran the facility for many years, I realized there was many flat spots and things that needed to change, but she was very archaic and didn't do a lot of innovating. And that was, you know, at that time, right, I I just did what I was told, right? And I was running the facility and I, I had some Autonomy to to do some things, but by and large, the rules were the rules, and they were the way they are. But I had to manage 275 ex felons, ex drug addicts, cerdanos Nortanios, Bloods, Crips, Whites, Power, White Power, Skinheads. Manage these manage these social enterprises that were generating millions of dollars a year. Manage this population. It was it was incredible. And at about three and a half years, I had just started running the facility. Right. I ended up running it for five. I remember in my room when I was shaving and the soul keeps the score. I remember standing in the mirror and I was shaving and I thought to myself, I could go live my life outside of Delancey Street exactly the way I'm doing it now. I knew it, I just knew my soul. It was weird, it was, it was one of those promptings or whatever you wanna call it. It just came to me that I am ready, I'm ready to go live my life, but I fulfilled my commitment. I stayed the next five years, right? But I knew I could go do it, Hmm. right? There was no question I could go do it. That is the beauty of the model of a TC, and this is so important. Anytime you send any drug addict or anybody like me to a program that has a fixed end date, you're signing their death warrant. Hmm. Nobody is ready on day 30, day 60, or day 90, any more so than I was ready at day 730. That was the minimum required commitment. But when you give somebody, anybody you say on this day you're done— you're signing their death warrant. Nobody's ready on that day, Hmm. right? You just do time to get to that day. When you're allowed as much time as you need to make the necessary changes in your Mm -hmm. life to become the 2.0 version and recalibrate your moral compass, like I said earlier, I stayed in Delancey Street in eight and a half years because I could. The last five years, I probably didn't need to be there, but man, did I want to be there. Running a multi-million dollar organization and I, you know, want, want to know how much money I made? Zero. Hmm. I was a resident still. I did it for free. Hmm. You couldn't have paid me to do it. I loved what I was doing. I didn't sleep that whole time. I was up on the floor early. I was on the floor late, constantly working through all the drama that that population will create. I loved what I was doing and watching people come in, pull their head out of their Southern exposure, Right start making the necessary changes that need to be made and become the best version of themselves and graduate and go back into the community and make a difference in their communities and get their families back. It was just a great opportunity up until the point that I got the opportunity to come and help start The Other Side Academy. That was the last great decision I made besides marrying my
0: wife. Wow. So eight years comes and goes. Mm. You have this amazing experience to to change a lot of lives yeah. and run a huge organization but you, it's time to leave mm-hmm. so you you leave where where do you go
1: I met a gentleman his name is Bob Burkich B R K I C H there's no vowel in there it's B R K I C H Bob Burkich I happened to meet him when I was at Delancey Street doing Christmas trees we did Christmas trees at Delancey Street on a scale you could never imagine tree lots all over the L.A. County, about 10 lots at a time, and Christmas decorating, 25, 30-foot tall noble firs going into some of these skyscrapers in downtown L.A. Well, Bob Burkett shows up. Uh, his significant other showed up at my lot, and he wanted a 25-foot tree. And, uh, and I met him, and his name was Ben. And I remember it's funny. I'm just going to share the story. He's driving a Porsche, and on the license plate it says like Lay'n Pipe, like L A Y N. PYP. So then I get the tree all ready, right? Mm-hmm. We deliver the tree to Beverly Hills and it's going in Bob's front yard and he has a Hummer laying pipe, L A Y N P I P. And I'm looking at these two and they're, they're movie star good looking dudes, right? And I'm yeah. looking at him thinking, huh, oh, that's weird, right? Okay, wow. I get it. So I go, Bob, can I ask you a question? Tell me about the license plates. And he goes, well, I own Burkitts Construction, <laughs> right? And we do underground pipeline construction, right? And it's a large construction company. So Bob and I become friends. And a couple months later, I asked him if he would come over and do a big project at Delancey Street. Our sewage was backing up. Delancey Street, L.A. is a hotel, Hilton Hotel, built for the uh, 84 Olympics, 82 Olympics. I don't remember it was 82 or 84. Built for the Olympics to, to house people there. Anyway, it's a beautiful facility. But all the sewage was backing up. We had huge problems with that. So he came out and he assessed it all. He came in, knocked the wall down, brought all of his equipment in, brought his team in, did a $35,000 project, and he donated it to the other side, of, or to Delancey Street. Wow. So we fast became friends, right? He, he, I mean, that's a big project, yeah. and he did it yeah. uh, out of the out of the kindness of his heart. And he said, Dave, when you're done here, I want to bring you on. Hmm. I said, what does that mean? He said, when you're done in Delancey Street, I want to hire you at Perkins Construction. I thought, wow, thank you. I appreciate that. I didn't know what I was going to do. Right, I have no yeah. idea. So I don't know. A year or two goes by, and eventually, I'm done with Delancey Street, and I want to graduate, and I go to work for Bob. And He pays the five hundred dollars to get me into the, the Teamsters Union. So I get into Teamsters Union. I had my commercial driver's license in Delancey Street because there's a driving school there. Yeah. And uh, and he hires me, and I'm making like twenty nine dollars an hour uh, in the union. It was the more money. I'd, Hell, I'd been out of the workforce for decades. The last time I had a job at a pizza place, I was making like I don't know four fifty an hour. That's the gap. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my. God, 30 bucks an hour, that was a lot per hour for a guy with no lived experience in the workplace, really. So I go to work for him for a while. Then things start to slow down, right? And all my buddies are up in the Bakken on the oil fields, and they're making stupid money. And they're sending me what they're making. They're going, get up here, get up here. So I tell Bob, I'm going to go up to the Bakken and take advantage of this opportunity. He goes, I don't blame you. Go, go. you got my full support. When you come back, you've got a job. I go up to the Bakken in the oil fields, and I'm a hot oiler, right? I know that sounds sexy. Say it. Hot oiler. Go ahead and say it. PJ.
0: I can't say it like you. Hot it's, oiler. Come on, <laughs> it doesn't sound sexy. no fun. <laughs> I was a hot oiler. Hot oiler. I, I was a hot oiler. <laughs> um, anyway.
1: <laughs> uh, and, and I was a hot oiler, and, and, I, and I got up there and I slept on an air mattress at my buddy Alan's house for the first couple of months until he ended up moving out of that apartment and buying a house. And I worked 31 days in a row without a day off. And when I, when I went to work up there, I knew I could go up there, and make a bunch of money, and put it in the bank, right? And I made $17,500 the first month of work. Wow. That's not bad for, you know, wow. a dude fresh out of, you know, Delancey Street and all that time. So I started, I stayed there for five months and put all this money in the bank. Two things dawned on me, right? I always knew making money was fun. No one could deny that, right? Making money is yeah. fun. Uh, and then now they can't take it. The cops can't take it because I'm earning it legally. You know what I mean? Uh, but- There was a hole in my heart. I missed the people part. Making money was fun, but saving lives was rewarding. I loved going to work every day, but I hated my job. Mm. I loved standing on my own two feet, not being a burden on the community anymore, not needing anybody to take care of me. I can do it myself, but I hated my job. Come on, man. I'm either working at Burkitt's Construction, digging a hole and laying pipe. It has no meaning. Put the... The, the, the dirt back on top of it, cover it with asphalt. No one ever knows who did that. It did. I didn't have an impact on anybody. I missed Delancy Street. Mm. But there's no paid positions. Can't go back there and go hire me, right? Mimi was pissed off that I left anyway, yeah. right? Because she wanted me to stay. Yeah, But I left. Um, and so I, I was working and I was saving money. And then I came back to Southern California when I was doing presentations and all these little treatment facilities, just trying to inspire people. And it was feeding my soul, right? And it, really, that's the balm for our wounds, giving back and helping others. Um, And then a God shot. Joseph Grenny is our founder. Tim Stay is our CEO. When I say founder, we're all co-founders, but it was his idea to bring the Delancey Street model to Utah. Why? Because 20 years ago, he wrote the book, 18 years ago, he wrote the book, The Influencer. Now, some people who are listening have read Crucial Conversations, Crucial Accountability, or The Influencer. In that book, The Influencer, it features Mimi Sobert and Delancey Street, one of the chapters, as Joseph Grenny was going around the world interviewing people that were influencing huge change, whether it be AIDS reduction, infections in hospitals, everybody's going, go talk to Mimi about recidivism. Go talk to Mimi about prison recidivism. So he went and he interviewed Mimi. One of the chapters in The Influencer was uh, about Mimi. And when he wrote that, that book and he wrote that chapter in particular, he realized that Delancey Street had the cure for cancer. Moral mm-hmm. cancer, but mm-hmm. they wasn't spreading it. And he thought to himself, Sunday, I'd like to do this in Utah where I live. Joseph is about as LDS as they come. I don't know that I've ever met anybody else that's more LDS. No disrespect to anybody listening, but that's just, you know, my experience. And he often says jokingly that when God needs something done, he calls Joseph Grenny. I jokingly say, and if you're busy, he calls me. <laughs> <laughs> it's our joke, right? Yeah. We <laughs> laugh about it just like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh... He decides he wants to start something here because a couple of his kids ended up falling into drugs heavily, finding themselves in jail multiple times, and one of them almost OD'd and died. And he shows a video sometimes of his son in a hospital on life support as he's pulling through this overdose. And he thought, you know, if I can't win the war, I'm joining the battle. Or if I can't win the battle, I'm going to join the war. And uh, he got a cadre of people from Utah, from the attorney general to... Jeff Buman, who was the DA of Utah County, and many, many others. And they went to San Francisco, Delancey Street, for a two day replication training. They get there, they go through the two day replication training, and they realize, wow, what a crazy organization. It's incredible. We can do this, we can raise the money, but who's going to run it? Right? We can't run it. So they're talking to other people, and they do a reverse search of LinkedIn, and they find Charlotte. Baker Harper. Charlotte Baker Harper was in Delancey Street for 38 years. Basically she was like Mimi's daughter for many years. She had been there for decades. She was really my direct boss when I was in LA to San Francisco as a media between me and Mimi for a while. She had left. uh, They found her on LinkedIn. They contacted her. Her and I were no longer in Delancey Street. We were in contact and I had told her I said you know I I, I hate all these construction jobs. I wish I could find something that was like Delancey Street. And, you know, we were just having our, me and Charlotte were always close having our conversation. A couple days later, she calls me. She says, Dave, funny thing happened. I said, what's up? She says, these guys reached out to me from Utah and I'm flying out there this Friday to do some consulting. They want to start a replication of Delancey Street. If they're not serious or crazy, would you be interested? I'm laughing. I'm like, Charlotte, if they're not crazy, they have to be. Right? Yeah. So anyway, she says, well, I'll call you when I get back. So she goes up here and she consults with a group, Joseph and Tim and their wives and others that are involved in the project. She called me. She says, Dave, they're not crazy. I said, they're not? She says, no. Do you want an introduction? I said, hell yes. So we do the introduction over the phone. Tim and Joseph fly to Los Angeles. They get off the plane in L.A., at uh, LAX, I meet them at Fleming's Steakhouse at LA Live, where the Lakers and the Clippers play. They didn't know what I looked like. Apparently, this is the story they tell me, and they get off the plane. They're like, God, we're just going to go to Fleming's, but who is he? And Joseph will tell the stories. he's walking to Fleming's. He sees this guy leaning against the wall in a tank top, smoking a cigarette. He's going, oh, God, please no. <laughs> he says to the guy, Dave, and he goes, no, Tony. And he's like, oh, thank God.
0: <laughs> he tells the story better than me. I'm just reciting it, right?
1: But it's it's a... Anyway, they go inside Fleming's, and there I am sitting there in a shirt and a tie, you know, sitting early, of course, uh, when they get there. And we sit down for dinner. And I look at both of them, and I said, listen, I'm going first. Who in the hell are you? What's the genesis of thought behind this? What makes you think you can, and why would you want to? Who's first? So I interviewed them. Each one of them told me their story and who they are and why they were there, and I knew at the end of that conversation with both of them that I was sitting in the presence of two of the greatest men I'd ever met in my life. Now, you know both of them. Yeah. Um, And they are two of the greatest men I'd ever met in my life, and I knew. And then we had another couple-hour conversation, right? And uh, it was funny. At the end of the conversation, they said, Dave, are you willing to come to Utah and help us get this started? I said, not if you quit in six months when it gets hard, Right you got to understand this is not easy. You, have no, you two LDS do-gooders have no idea who you're dealing with when it comes to this population, but I'm all in if you are. But if I back up in the conversation some I'm telling my story, right? It's, God, it's so funny. As I'm telling my story and I'm almost done, and I said, and then I came out the other side. Tim goes, stop. What did you just say? I said, when I came out the other side. Tim looks at Joseph and they were at the airport. Joseph had TSA pre-check. Tim didn't. He said, Tim. See you on the other side. Then I said it in my story. What's the name of our organization today? Hmm. The Other Side Academy. We added Academy. But both of those things happened at the same time. They got off. They were getting on the plane to come there, and Joseph goes through TSA, tells Tim, see you on the other side. They didn't think anything of it. Then Tim started thinking to himself, the other side, the other side. Then we're sitting at dinner, and I'm telling my story, and I said, and then when I came out the other side, what did you just say? And then we added Academy to make it TOSA. Wow. The Other Side Academy. That's how we came up with the name. That's
0: how the name happened.
1: So I came out to Utah a week or two later, and we started looking around for properties and raising the money, and we started the Other Side Academy in 2015. The Other Side Academy is a replication of Delancey Street on steroids. Anabol, D-ball, Zenstrol, testosterone on all of them. We are so much more efficacious than Delancey Street could ever imagine being, and I say that with love. Yeah, Delancey Street was Delancey brilliant. Street saved your life. Yes, but just like any organization, if you don't grow with the times, if you don't innovate, if you don't improve, what I'm seeing today will happen. It's funny we're having mm-hmm. this conversation now because if we digress to three days ago when this conversation started, <laughs> or at least three yeah, hours ago. Yeah. Um Delancey Street I had mentioned is a dying animal now it's you know it's a fraction yeah. of what it once was. L.A. had 275 people it has 16. San Francisco had 550. It's under 80. Uh, New mm-hmm. York had 40 or 50. It has like six Delancey Street's dying because it's not innovating. It's all about leadership, in my opinion. Who do you have at the helm running the show to make sure that things continue to move Mm -hmm. forward? I hear a lot of buzz that it's the sentencing guidelines. Well, we're faced with the same thing here. Nobody wants to send anybody to jail or prison anymore because the liberal, bleeding-heart liberals are running this country now, and they just think that, oh, my God, the poor drug addict, just let him out again, just let him out again. And things are going to continue to get worse that way. I'm not saying jails and prisons are going to solve the problem. Uh, they will if we get better at what we do with people once we have them incarcerated. But in order to keep the community safe, we need jails and prisons. We can get to that here shortly. So uh, where was I at? What was the point I was making? Uh, uh, the, the Delancey Street. The Delancey has, Street model, yeah. As...
0: Diminished. Yeah, it's
1: diminished. In the other side, of Academy, we're, we're a minimum 30 months long, minimum 30 months. Deland Street was two years. We're 30 months. Our average student has been arrested 25.6 times. Now, no one gets arrested 0.6. That's the aggregate total. Of the 150 people I have living on property in Salt Lake, uh, 122 or 123 are students 20 or so are staff and the rest are graduates. The average, I have a small cadre of people who have never been arrested, some over 50 times. We scaled the model into Denver. Lola Strong and Steve Strong are managing that facility. It's been open for four and a half years and thriving. Minimum 30 months, 65% of the people who come to us ask to stay a third year or longer. No doctors, no counselors, no therapists. That's why it works. When you think about treatment facilities in this country... The average treatment facility can boast, but they don't, a 3 to 5% success rate. And the reason why that is is when you get there, one of the first questions they ask you is, how much money do you have? Well, I don't have any. Go die. Now, they don't say go die, but you can't stay there because you can't pay for it. If you do have money, BJ, when do you have to leave? Hmm. When the money runs out. The model's broken. I-, I sometimes believe it's done intentionally. The system has been built to work exactly how it's working, I think, Right. The treatment facilities, and I I, I implore people to do this tonight when you go down to bed before you do get your computer and find me the science that says 30, 60, or 90 days is the optimal time. It doesn't exist. You won't find any science that says that. The science will prove that the dosage effect is real. The longer you stay in treatment, the better your odds of success. But the government got involved in this stuff 50 years ago and started pouring money into it. And then going, no, 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 no. Phoenix House, no. Daytop, no. Two years is too long. Can you do it in one year? Here's some more money. Can you do it in six months? Here's some more money. Can you do it in 90 days? You can serve more people. We've killed millions of people serving more people people I don't care about outputs I care about outcomes right the longer you're in an organization that's going to help you recalibrate your moral compass the Mm -hmm. better your odds of success if Dave DeRocher got to a treatment facility uh, after his fourth prison term and I stayed for three days can I change no way 10 days no 30 days of course not because as soon as I turn around my old lifestyle is right there now I stayed eight and a half years When I left Delancey Street and I turned around, my old lifestyle was gone. I'm not saying people need to stay eight and a half years, but the longer you stay and the more you fix your life, the harder it is to return to the old one. It's so simple. It's complicated, but it's not complex. Think about what I'm saying. If you want to get really good at something, what do you do? Practice. If you want to get really, really good at it, what do you do? You practice some more. And if you want to get great at it, you do it some more. That's life. If you want to get good at life, practice. You can't get good at life in 30 days. Hmm. Not when you, were, when you were really bad at it to begin with. So the treatment, the, 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 the length of time is imperative. The other piece is no government money, which means the government can't step in and tell us how to do it. If the government knew how to solve this problem, BJ, they never would have created it. Hmm. I believe that in, in every fiber of my body. I also believe, I mean, could you imagine... If God came into this room right now and we're in this small room and he said, BJ, Dave, i got good news. I've got the cure for addiction and the cure for criminal behavior right now. I'm fixing it. Our economy would collapse. Judges, DAs, courts, public defenders, doctors, therapists, hospitals, treatment facilities, jails, prisons, law enforcement. Could you imagine all the people who are affected by the things that I were doing would be out of work? There's billions and billions and billions upon trillions of dollars funneling through these systems that are keeping people working, but the system isn't working. Hmm. That doesn't mean there isn't good people working inside those systems, trying to make a change, trying to trying to make it better. But their hands are cuffed, pardon the pun, right? Because they're Hmm. tied to these government funding sources. I mean, I've lost so much faith in our government, and I love America. I'll fight for it in a heartbeat. But I've lost faith because I live at the epicenter of everything. I see what's happening. And I wonder myself, we can't be the only ones that understand the dynamic here, that these short-term places don't do much good, but at least they're really expensive. We're funding places that don't work. What other industry on the face of the planet can you fund with trillions of dollars that has a 3 to 5% success rate? Hell, if you were building widgets and they were coming out and they weren't spinning, you'd stop the conveyor belt and fix it. Yeah. So the widgets were working when they came out the other end. Yeah. We're not doing that. We're not innovating when it comes to, to treatment facilities and therapy. The longer, the better, period. But you can't go longer because they're not willing to fund it.
0: Which is why the Other Side Academy is so effective. Yeah. You stay as long as you need. Stay as long as you need. You have businesses that mm-hmm. you're the moving company. Maybe tell a little bit yeah. more about that. I mean, the moving company, uh, we've had family experiences. That yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean... It's, it's Here, here's the why thing. wouldn't you hire the other side movers? Yeah. Because the, you get the best, amazing service.
1: The, the other side academy doesn't accept any money from the government at all. Nothing from the city, from the county, from the state, from the federal government. Rich mommy and daddy can't come in and write a huge check, Medic uh, uh, insurance, nothing. We take no money from the government. So people go, well, how do you do it? We have our own social enterprises. We have a moving company called The Other Side Movers. Google The Other Side Movers in Salt Lake, and you'll see hundreds, if not thousands, of five-star reviews. It is a moving company ran by ex-felons and ex-drug addicts. I say this tongue-in-cheek, but if you were going to start a for-profit enterprise um, with ex-felons and ex-drug addicts, why are you laughing, BJ? (laughs) Would you start a moving company? And people are always like, oh, God, no. Why not? We have experience moving your stuff. (laughs) only now <laughs> from your house to from your house right <laughs> only now you get it back in 2018 we were at the grand america hotel 1500 people in a black tie affair and we won the ernst and young entrepreneurs of the year we kicked utah's elite while all these businesses in corporate america is going after the top 2% we're taking the bottom 2% and we're kicking their ass
0: <laughs> we've won best of
1: state year after year after year with our moving company with our thrift boutiques with our nonprofit, with our model we've just recently won best of salt lake i mean we've got we'll just keep winning all these awards because what we're doing is effective it's working it's transforming lives the moving company the thrift boutiques when people hear thrift boutique they think goodwill di think macy's or think nordstrom's they're that nice We have a small construction company called The Other Side Builders, and we have a storage company where we do white glove storage, crated storage, and rack storage. It's Fort Knox, completely fenced in. I have an acre of land. We have a house on that acre of land, and we have graduates living there. Once you give us your stuff, you don't get it back. (laughs) (laughs) It's difficult to get to. It's so safe. but. Those four social enterprises generate the revenue that allows us to do the work that we're doing without charging anybody anything to be there and not taking any money from the government. Here's why it's important. Two prong. When I was going to jail, who was paying for me?
0: Taxpayers. You were, BJ. Yeah.
1: I was exploiting you. Yeah. I knew what I was doing was wrong. I did it anyway, and you paid my rent. Thank you. When I was going to prison, who was paying for me? Yeah. Yeah. The taxpayer, yeah. do me a favor, BJ, pay more in taxes, right, please, because the next time I go, I want to eat a little bit better. The food sucks. I knew what I was doing was wrong again, and I knew when I got busted, I was going to prison, and I knew the community and the taxpayer was going to foot the bill. Why should another adult, BJ, if you get in an accident today, you drive out, and let's just say you went out tonight and you had a couple drinks, and you drove down the street and you crashed into somebody's car and you did some damage, should I pay for it? Of course not. Then why should you pay for me? The model's broken. Hmm. When you get to a TC, like the Other Side Academy, the day you get there, you become part of the solution, not the problem. It's fascinating when I put it like that. If you get in an accident because of a poor choice you make, I'm not going to pay for it. Your insurance is. If you don't have insurance, you get sued. But if you're a drug addict and a criminal, the taxpayer has to pay for my my, my mistakes. Funny how it works. Nothing else
0: works like that Hmm. but this. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work. But at least it's expensive. So you said the uh, the efficiency rate is much higher than Delancey Street. What's yeah. the difference between the Other Side Academy and, you know what I mean? Yeah. Why, why is it so much One uh, of the more things efficient?
1: I think at the Other Side Academy is, is we have 12 beliefs. They're like the 12 steps, but not 12 steps, but 12 beliefs. The foundation of those 12 beliefs is love. Delancey Street had love, but not like the Other Side Academy does. We really focus on love, and we believe that love is truth. Hmm. The, the more important thing is the way we deliver that truth isn't as verbally violent as Delancey Street was. We are focused more on whole person change and really getting to the root of the issues with people. Not that Delancey Street didn't do a good job with that, but not as good as I think they could have done. More importantly is this. In Delancey Street, when you're done and you're going to go out in the community and get a job, they don't have a job for you. You're walking down the street with saggy pants and a hat on crooked, uh, me, right, looking for a job, right? What do you think the odds of me getting a job are? I I have no experience. I have no resume. I have nothing, and I'm just walking down the street looking for a job. You get that job. might take you a month. You have 90 days in your workout phase, which means you're no longer a resident there. You're out in the community working. might take me a month to get a job. Now I have two months to save some money. Let's say I make $5,000 in those two months. Delancey Street keeps half. I get half. Now I'm walking down the street. I'm done with Delancey Street. I have $2,500 to my name in Los Angeles or San Francisco. What do you think is going to happen? It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. The Other Side Academy. Whether you stay two, three, four, or five years, the day you decide that you're going to graduate and we agree that you're ready, we have a full-time job for you. 100% of our students... We have a full-time job for them. They're going to go directly from this structured environment of the Other Side Academy straight into a full-time job structured environment. I am not putting you on public transportation. We have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on a whole fleet of vehicles. I'm going to hand you the car keys to a vehicle, BJ. You, to, you drive this to and from work. Do you understand? Yeah. BJ, to and from work. Got it? That's it. When I hand you the keys, what does it tell you? You trust. I trust you. I don't want you on public transportation. I don't want you walking down the street. We have a full-time job for you. We have built relationships with all of these organizations. If something starts to go wrong, they call us and vice versa. That's why hundreds of organizations in the Valley want our graduates because they have such a monster work ethic. When you get that job, you move across the street to graduate housing. Now, Delancey Street had no job placement, no savings, no graduate housing. Here, you go get your job. Here's a vehicle to drive to and from work while you save money to get a car. Go across the street, live in graduate housing. You're required to save $5,000 during that year in graduate housing, and you have to go to a financial literacy class for that year. You will match that uh, up to a certain amount. If you stay three years as a student at the Other Side Academy, get a job. Now you've been a student for three years. You've been working for one year. You've saved 5000 We match it two to one. Now you've been a gra- uh, a student for two or three, you've been a graduate for one. Your old lifestyle is four years behind you. If you only saved five thousand dollars, we match it two to one. Now you have fifteen thousand. We've called apartment complexes and property management companies all over the valley. They will now rent to our graduates. That was more that was more difficult to do than finding places to hire us, hmm. people who would rent to us. We've checked all those boxes. Delancey Street did none of that. Mm. What do you think the odds of success are Mm. when we take care of you on the back end?
0: Oh, yeah, they've got to be. So
1: that's just one of the things. We also do stuff on the front end to help with attrition. When you get to Delancey Street, you are thrown in the deep end of the pool. The day you get there, you could get blasted for whatever you've done. At the Other Side Academy, we ease you in as you get acclimated to the culture, right? Eventually, you're going to get what you've got coming if you're acting out in any particular way but we ease you in and there's a number of things that we do to ease that that you know culture shock if you will if i took you bj a father a husband a business owner a good human being and i dropped you in prison you would be lost you wouldn't mm-hmm. have a clue how to navigate that world yeah somebody would have to grab you and go come on kid under my wing i've got you that's what we do with the other side academy and we do it very very well yeah
0: wow now, how, how long is the how long has it been? It was 2015. We
1: opened in 2015. Yeah. Uh, we've, We're
0: 2023 now. Yeah. Are you ready for this? Are yes, you sitting? I'm sitting.
1: Okay. Every single student that comes to the Other Side Academy is on adult parole and probation. Acronym, AP&P. They either... Walked through our front door and took a seat on the bench and asked for an interview. And we accepted them and found out they had been released from jail 15 times already. And they've got a bunch of warrants and all these cases. In Utah, they'll arrest you. You have a warrant, they'll release you. Arrest you, you have a warrant, they'll release you. And it just keeps stacking up. So then we get a hold of the courts. But you're going to be on, you're on APNP, adult parole and probation. Or you write us a letter from the county jail like Dave did, pre-sentence. We'll interview you. If we accept you, then the judge can send you to us. And you're going to be placed on APNP every single student on adult parole and probation we have never not a single time given a dirty drug test to adult parole and probation the culture at the other side academy is so strong you're familiar with it so you know already you can't penetrate it it's so strong that if someone comes in and they're trying to get dirty or do something the students are gonna call it out and we're gonna deal with it accordingly people talk about accountability all the time they have no idea what they're talking about you wanna learn about accountability Come to the Other Side Academy. We'll teach you. We're running, are you ready? We are running world-class organizations, world-class social enterprises, winning awards across the board with a population that is comprised of ex-felons and ex-drug addicts. How are we doing that? Accountability. That is how we're doing it. Why can we do it? We tell people the truth. We don't shy away from the truth. If you love somebody, you tell them the truth, Hmm. period. Anything shy of that? Is enabling, hmm.
0: man, powerful. It's it's just crazy. I think I remember my first experience coming into tour of the other side academy and talking with you and <coughs> Alan. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, I remember you guys saying that you know when a, when a student comes in, if they have kids or mm-hmm. whatever, they can't even communicate. They can't send them a letter. They mm-hmm. can't. And I. And I got an emotion. I got emotional. I was like, well, I, like, that seems, that's horrible. That's horrible. Yeah. And you said, you said to me, um, well, how you say it is very different, but you, you, you basically said um, something about if you love your kids, I hate to see, what, how, what, what, is, what did you, t-
1: how would you treat them if you hated them? So if I do an interview yeah. with somebody and they're in the county jail and they've been arrested 33 times, yeah, they don't have their kids. Yeah. If you've been arrested 33 times, 32 times ago, someone took those kids from you because you're incapable of it. Don't sit here and tell me you love them. How would you treat them if you hated them? You don't even have them because they were taken from you basically because you gave them away. You know, mo- my average student's been arrested 25.6 times, so no one who comes to us has kids. And here's the part that all the bleeding heart people don't understand. You might, you might not even understand because you're a father and you do it Right. But if you've been to jail that many times, could you imagine all the crimes you committed that you didn't get caught for? There are, there, are, there are students that we have currently right now that were out there when they had possession of their kids that would put the kids in the back seat and the car seats, put the guns in the trunk with the dope, drive into the drug neighborhood to make the delivery, and if as long as the kids were in the car seats, the cops wouldn't pull them over because they're just a family driving through the neighborhood. We have people who were brutally raped people who were brutally raped by their dad for many, many years and then went out and had you know six kids with nine different men themselves. And then while they, while they were chasing man number 10, guess where they dropped those kids off at? Hmm. The same dad, grandpa, that raped them. There's a million stories like that that people who make judgment on the way we do things don't understand. Dave DeRocher was a drug-dealing criminal running guns and drugs. Should my kids be near me? Hell No. And if they are, what am I teaching them? I'm teaching them to be me. Hmm. Hmm. People don't understand that piece. Most people are like, oh my God, you got to reunite them with their kids. No, you don't. Raising kids is one of the most difficult things the human being will ever do. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of a child. If you cannot take care of yourself, you definitely can't take care of children. If you want to break the cycle in this country, get the drug addict criminal away from the child until the drug addict criminal has changed. Get that kid someplace safe. I can't make this up. I can grab my phone right now. So for everybody listening going, oh my God, he's crazy. That's so mean. There's a gentleman who's a friend of the academies. I won't tell you the dynamic. Who is a drug addict. He's on, he's off. He's on, he's off. He got married. He's got kids. He started using again. And he found himself in the hospital he OD'd. Then, uh, about a week later, he's at home and he drops his dope. The 10-month-old baby picks the dope up. Mm. The 10-month-old baby eats the dope. They had to Narcan, the 10-month-old, twice to save the baby's life. Would you like to hear some more stories? If you allow the kids to be around the parents who are doing drugs, you're going to kill the kids, either physically or morally. People are always going, how do you break the cycle? Break the damn cycle. I now am in my kids' lives. I've earned the right. I'm not in my kids' life because I was biologically their father. I was never their dad. I made other choices in my life. I own that shit today.
0: Yeah.
1: That's the difference between me and many people. I own it. And that's why I can be good at what I'm doing now yeah. because all of our students, oh, I miss my kids. Hell, half the time, the people who are raising them, don't, you don't even know where they're at. You don't know their phone number. <laughs> I miss my kids. Same people that were putting them in the you know in the car seats. Or or we've had students take their kids, take them over to Flacco's house, the drug dealer, drop them off as collateral to come back later on when they bring the cash to get that quarter ounce of dope. Hmm. You shake your head when I say that. Welcome to a drug addict with kids. The drug addict will be loaded, smoking some dope, doing some heroin, the kids gotta go to school. Put them in the car, drive them under the influence. People don't think about these things because in their heads, they visualize what they see on TV sometimes. The poor little drug addict just told this guy with the drug That's what they picture in their heads. They have no idea who we're truly capable of being and why it is important if you want to raise good kids, get them away from us Hmm. until we have earned the right to be in their presence. Because two things happen if you think kids are listening to you and they learn that way, no, they don't. You're a fool to believe that. Kids learn by watching us. The better role model you are and the better you act, that is what kids are listening to far more than our words. We say no, 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 don't do that far too often. They see how we carry ourselves, the way we behave, the way we act. We are modeling from them. When we're a drug addict, we're on our phones, we're making drug deals, we have people coming over. Guess who we're raising? Future drug addicts. So I, I was sharing with you earlier, I was going to ask you to come back to this, right, the the gateway drug. Here's the problem in this country. We're killing our country. We are destroying it. We are raising a generation of drug addicts, and I don't care what anybody says. They're wrong. I'm going to explain to you why. BJ, I'm going to assume you're not a drug addict. How old are you today? 44. You're 44 years old. If you just decided to go home tonight, and there was a group of people over there, and someone said, hey, I'm going to smoke a joint, and you were a little stressed out, you've never done drugs before, and you go, yeah, I'm going to take a couple of hits off this joint. You have the emotional maturity at 44 years old and the intellectual capacity to understand the decision you're making. It's like having a drink at, if you yeah. started at this age. You understand the choice you're making. I guarantee you a year from now, you won't be doing heroin. But we're legalizing pot in this country across the board. Now we've legalized it. BJ's coming home and he's smoking a joint. And his 16-year-old kid's coming home from school, walks in the house. What does he smell? Yeah. What does he smell? He smells weed. Who's he stealing it from six months from now? His dad. Who else is he hanging out with? Other kids that are smoking weed. You follow along very well. The 16-year-old does not have the intellectual capacity or the emotional maturity to understand the decision they're making. And if he's hanging out with other kids smoking pot, some of them are doing coke, meth, or heroin. Guess what he's going to be doing a year from now? Marijuana and alcohol are gateway drugs for kids. If we normalize it in this country, and if you go to San Francisco, Cali- anywhere in California, Portland, Oregon, New York, Colorado, Nevada, no matter where you go, all you smell is pot, 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 pot. Everywhere, and I travel a lot. It's everywhere. What are we telling kids? That's okay. We're raising a generation of drug addicts and then pretending like we give a shit. Hmm. The American people are at fault. Policymakers are at fault. Think about it. Do you really think the world is a better place, our country is a better place when you legalize drugs? If you make drugs readily available... It is easy to use. When you make it difficult to get, it is harder to use. Which one do you think incentivizes change?
0: Hmm.
1: We're doing it wrong. And most people don't want to say that. I will. We're doing it wrong. Hmm. The world is not a better place when people are doing drugs out in the open. We're teaching kids that it's okay. Hmm. Wow. And it's a gateway drug for kids far more so than adults. Hmm. And when I was just in Kensington, Pennsylvania, a few months ago, we're helping an organization out there. If you Google Kensington, Pennsylvania, it is an open air market. We were driving down the street in Kensington. It is like an apocalypse. Pregnant woman with a needle in her arm. She should be in jail. We drove by, she's got a needle in her arm. She's pregnant. She, I don't care what anybody says, she should be in jail whether she wants to be there or not, forced to detox for the child's sake. As we drive down the street some more, I've got my colleagues with me. I want to get out of the car and do some interviews. They don't want to get out of the car. It's so dangerous. I wanted to get out of the car. We see a whole group of men, another guy with a needle in his arm, bunch of people all around it. They're dropping their needles. One of them's got his pant leg pulled up and they're showing the decay of his leg for the other kinds of drugs they're doing. This isn't a community in the United States of America how the hell did we get here? We're allowing it to happen. BJ, there are police cars backed into some driveways and apartment complexes. They're just sitting there to keep the peace to make sure there's no violence. We are in a neighborhood. When those families or kids come out of their apartments, what do they see? Hmm. When you make it normal, you're going to create more drug addicts. I was appalled at what I saw. Now we've legalized it in Portland, Oregon. Literally yesterday, I was on a phone call with the Capitol in Oregon with the Committee on Addiction and Public Safety. I'm trying, we are trying as an organization to help other communities around the country. On a Zoom call at the Capitol talking to their legislation about the mistakes they made with, I think it was Bill 110, when they legalized small amounts of illicit drugs, they've destroyed their neighborhood. They've lost the city. Google, yeah, I said Kensington earlier, now Google Portland, Oregon. The Walmarts are closed, pizza shops, coffee shops, all the restaurants, they've lost the city. The drug addict criminal can go into a Walmart with their shopping cart, fill it up and walk out and you can't do anything. How in the hell did we get here? Now the drug addict criminal is the protected class. The hardworking, taxpaying American citizen has no rights in some of these cities. What the hell are we doing hmm. this liberal approach to this problem has created it so people get up in arms when i say that oh my god you can't say this liberal it is the liberal approach because on all these places i've just mentioned they're liberal run right these theories are ideals but they've lost these cities they're destroying the, our country as we know it they're saying dave we cannot incarcerate our way out of this problem i said you're right we can't. But we're pregnant in this country with a, a permissive country on drug use. Even here in Salt Lake City, it makes me nuts. I've been talking to the chiefs of police. I call them on their stuff. Even though it's not legal here, it is de facto. You can go down to Liberty Park in the morning and watch all those encampments. I watch $10,000 mountain bikes roll up and do drug deals when I'm out there running and people on the sidewalks getting high. When I was a drug addict, BJ, you wouldn't catch me out at 4.45 in the morning. I knew if I got caught, I was going to jail. The reason why they're out there doing it is they know they won't.
0: Hmm.
1: We're allowing it to happen. So people always go, well, what's the solution? You give them two choices. Go to treatment. Go to jail. You choose. Tell me, other than those two choices, how we're going to solve the problem. We're not. Go to treatment, go to jail. We'll take you to either one. Where would you like to go? <gasps> well, I can't give up my cart. The cart belongs to the smith she stole it from. Well, I can't give up my bike. The bike came out of someone else's garage. You didn't take $3,000 in cash down to Shields and buy the bike. How many people listening to this podcast right now have had their stuff stolen from a drug addict? Why is being a drug addict permission to be a criminal? That's why we've lost our communities we do not hold people accountable.
0: Wow. It's powerful stuff. I I agree with you 100%. So, Dave, as we're as we close out this inter- this uh interview, this discussion, I'm so grateful. Um I want to hear just a little bit, where are you now? Like personally, you know, you mentioned you have a relationship with your kids. Yeah. Tell me now, where, where are you now, um, personally?
1: My oldest boy, is 38 years old. His name is Christopher. Uh, I got married three years ago, and he was at the wedding. And we've built a great relationship, and I love him dearly. And he said to me, he says, Dad, he calls me Pops. Dad occasionally, but it's Pops. It used to be Dave. Now it's Pops. He said, would you be willing to get your license and marry me to my <laughs> wife? So two years ago, October... I flew home and performed the ceremony that married my oldest boy to his wife. Wow. My youngest boy is his name is Ben. He lives in Oregon. Two grandkids, Ellie and Gunnar. I was out there a few months ago and saw them for the first time. And I now have a relationship with him hmm. and my middle boy, which is Christopher's younger brother, Ryan. He is at my Denver facility, our Denver facility, getting help. A couple of my kids ended up learning from me, even in my absence. Hmm. Um, but I have a great relationship with all three of them. I have a great relationship with my parents. I have a great relationship with my wife. Um, I am a part of this community. I God, I love Salt Lake. I'm an honorary colonel with the South Salt Lake Police Department. I'm on the board. I'm a Rotarian on the uh, Rotary Club, and they called me yesterday and asked me to be on the board of the Rotary Club um, and a number of other boards around the city. I am good friends with our mayors, our governors, our chiefs of police, uh, first name basis, we text each other and bounce things off of each other. My life has never ever been better, and I, I I'm like an extremist. I don't think I had, my, I don't think I was born with a moderator. You know, some people are missing a <laughs> finger or a toe. I'm missing a moderator. I'm either way dark or a way light. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm on the light side now, and I have been for about 18 years. Um, I love my life today because I'm a part of my community. I'm a part of something good, and I really truly believe that when you're involved in the community and you're involved and your life has purpose and it has meaning, I could never throw my life away again today. Remember how I said earlier, the farther you get away from lifestyle, the harder it is to throw it away? Now, the farther you get away from lifestyle, and the more meaning you have in your life, the harder it is to throw away. That's the, that's the X factor. Those are the X factors. So I'm deeply involved in our community, deeply involved with the Other Side Academy and all the students that I, I get to, to, to be there with. Um, I don't know what else to, how else to say it. I, I have a a beautiful wife, you know, my wife, Mandy, and she deals with me, uh, much to her chagrin sometimes because (laughs) of the schedule that I keep. Um, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I travel a lot. I get the opportunity to share what we're doing around the world. Um, been to London, been to India, been to Spain, been to Italy, Uh, Thailand, speaking at World Federation of Therapeutic Communities. I get invited to do presentations around the country. Oftentimes, I think just because I can say things that nobody else will, I call it the truth. (laughs) Some people might argue, but it's fascinating to me, right? I won't name names, but I get treatment facilities in the state of Utah. This is fascinating. They'll call me. I'll be there next week. Dave, we have a whole new group of students. Can you come speak to them? You want to know what they have me do? They have me come tell the truth. They're, they're, they're restricted with their license that they can't tell people the truth about themselves. <gasps> you can't say that. So they have me come in and do what they can't do. And you wonder why people are going mm. back to drugs all the time because you can't tell them the truth. So I go in and I bring the heat. Mm. I say that. I, I smile. I, say, I bring the heat. I mean, I come in. I tell my story. And I bring the heat. So many people have ended up leaving those programs and finding the Other Side Academy because you want to know why? They want the truth. They want the heat. They want someone to hold them accountable. It just so happens that we're human too. Wow.
0: This has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your experiences, your expertise, and and the mission you're on of just changing and saving lives. And I'm yeah. I'm grateful to know you. So thank, thank you, you so much. I love you, brother. Love you too, man. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Okay, thank you. You're welcome.